Would you open your Bibles to two passages of Scripture? The first from the book of Acts, Acts chapter 1, and then I'm going to the book of Revelation chapter 1. First, Acts chapter 1, verse 10. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way that you have seen him go into heaven. And then from the book of Revelation, chapter 1, last book in the Bible, chapter 1, verse 7. Look, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye shall see him, even those who pierced him, and all the peoples of the earth will mourn or wail because of him. So shall it be. Amen. Brief word of prayer. Heavenly Father, I pray now for the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus by your Holy Spirit to be upon every mind present, that their perception of what I say will be received and grasped and applied as you intend. And upon my tongue, that I'll be cleansed, that I might be your transparent instrument to say everything you want said, nothing you don't want said. And may this be a word that will be so clear and so pivotal in our thinking. May it change lives and bring great honor and glory to your name. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Don't feel bad about the cell phone. It happened to me last week at the IBIOL in the middle of my lecture. And I've got the victory over that. Years ago, whenever a cell phone or mobile phone would go off when I'm preaching, I'd get so upset. And I was preaching in Scotland about eight years ago, and I heard one go off, and I thought, who ever is that? Why couldn't they? And then it kept ringing. It was mine. <laughs> <laughs> that cured me. It cured me. So I don't... Uh, uh, lose my temper anymore <laughs> when a cell phone goes off. That said, would you all please turn your cell phones off? <laughs> At Westminster Chapel, we had a ministry called Pilot Lights, where we passed out tracks on Saturdays. And uh, one day, a man was walking in High Street, Kensington, and he stepped on it, one of our tracks. Those are his very words. He literally stepped on it. And, and uh, he reached down to see what he had stepped on, picked it up, took it with him, read it, and was converted. Came to the chapel looking for me. He eventually I baptized him, became part of the congregation for four years. But about six months after he had been a Christian, he came up to me and he said, am I right? If I picked up somewhere that, that Jesus is coming back? I said, yeah. 
He said, I thought I heard that. And I, I've been reading the Bible. In other words, he's, he's coming back. I said, yes. He said, that's wonderful, isn't it? <laughs> and, and it just hit me how he was a, a Christian now born again from out of the world, hadn't been brought up, didn't know the language of Zion, and he just discovered it. And you don't need to believe in the second coming in order to be saved, and it just hadn't it crossed his mind. I hadn't preached on it, obviously, and, but it was such a discovery for him. It was so thrilling. I remember years ago when I had what I call, perhaps not the best phrase for it, Damascus Road experience. Years ago, driving in my car when the glory of the Lord filled the car and my life was changed. But several things came out of that immediately. One was assurance of my salvation. One was uh, how real it was that Jesus was a man who died on the cross, raised from the dead. But also, the reality of the second coming of Jesus. It was so real, it was as though it already happened. And there are not many things that I believe that strongly. I'd like to think all that I preach I believe strongly, but there are probably perspectives I have on some things that I might not go to the stake for. I don't know that I have a, a view of uh, ecclesiology uh, that I'd go to the stake for, which form of government, the church, Episcopal, Presbyterian, Congregational, uh, the Bible teaches all three. And so there are some things I believe I wouldn't die for. But what I'm going to say tonight, I would die for, because that's how much I believe it. Now, we're talking about this same Jesus. This is the way it is put in Acts chapter 1. This same Jesus, who has been taken from you into heaven, will come back in the same way as you've seen him go. This is arguably the clearest verse that describes the second coming of anything in the Bible. It's making the point that there would be two comings of Messiah. Now, I don't think anybody thought that. They didn't expect that the one they were waiting for, first of all, they didn't know he was going to die on a cross. Uh, and that took some time for them to take in. And then the idea that this same Jesus who would go to heaven, be seated at the right hand of God, would come back. And that's what we're talking about. This same Jesus in the same body as they saw him when he ascended is coming again. So it was God's plan from the beginning that there were two comings of the Son of God. The first, when he ended up on a cross in apparent defeat in the eyes of some. Of course, that wasn't defeat because this is the way God intended to save the world through the death of his Son. But they hadn't conceived even of that, not to mention that he would be raised from the dead, ascended to heaven, and he would stay there until he comes back. Psalm 110, verse 1. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make my enemies my footstool. This was quoted by Peter on the day of Pentecost. And you may not have thought about it before, but Psalm 110 is the most 
quoted verse in the New Testament. And one of the things it says that some people haven't perhaps got it very deeply is that he won't come back until he makes all his enemies his footstool. Now that has profound implications. And I don't intend to unravel all of that in the next few minutes. But keep it in mind that this Jesus would stay at God's right hand until all his enemies would be his footstool. All right. The first time he came to die on a cross. The second time he would come as judge. And it would vindicate the fact that he died on the cross and that all of Scripture got it right that this Jesus would return after he made all of his enemies his footstool. Now, because it's taken so long for Jesus to come back, and I put it that way because many thought he would come back in the same generation. As a matter of fact, in 1 Thessalonians, you have Paul writing this epistle uh, when uh, many thought that uh, he was going to come back any day. There were stories that people were quitting their jobs and selling their goods, saying, we don't need these because he's coming back again. And, and Jesus, uh, they thought, would come any minute. Well, Paul wrote to Thessalonians to say, don't stop working because this day will not come until certain things take place first. Now, I'm not going to go into all that now except because it's been now some 2,000 years, not just 40, 50 years, there have been various views to explain the second coming, some of which almost explain it away. There are those who say the second coming of Jesus took place at Pentecost, that he came the second time by the Holy Spirit. Well, uh, some believe that. There are those who say, well, no, that's not when it was. It took place in 70 A.D. because Jesus foretold the destruction of Jerusalem, when Rome would be uh, destroyed, uh, that is to say, overcome in Jerusalem and, and Roman armies, rather, would, would defeat everybody around Jerusalem and, and the whole temple would be completely destroyed. Well, that was in around 70 A.D. And some think, well, that is what was meant by the second coming. There are others who say, no, what it means is that when he came the first time, he would die on a cross, but he comes the second time into my heart. And they would say the second coming of Jesus is conversion. He comes the second time into your heart. Well, nice idea, but that's not what was taught here when the two men in white said this same Jesus, same Jesus, will come in the same way as you've seen him go. Well, he went to heaven in the clouds. He would come back in the clouds. Uh, but others say, no, the second coming was simply the spreading of Christianity. It went from Jerusalem to Samaria, Judea, uttermost parts of the earth, all over the Mediterranean, and now around the world. That is the second coming that he would just spread the gospel. Well, all those views were invented because they wanted to make sense that there he would come again. But we're saying here 
that even though it's been 2,000 years, for some reason, God has been pleased to delay the second coming of Jesus. And we know that it will be the same Jesus, and he will come in the same way he went into heaven. Now, I want to talk a bit about the manner of his coming. One of the most intriguing phrases, you see it again and again, is that he would come with clouds. He would come with clouds. Now, uh, that's the way he left. Uh, he was taken into heaven, and uh, we're told in verse 9 of Acts chapter 1, a cloud came and hid him from their sight, and he just was taken up, and they all keep looking. And it's interesting that time after time, Matthew chapter 24, verse 30, he will come with clouds. Uh, we see it in 1 Thessalonians 4, 17. Uh, he will come with clouds. Uh, Revelation chapter 1, verse 7 that I just read, he will come with clouds. Now, why would that be? Years ago, when I was a little boy, I think I was 9 or 10 years old, I was with my old pastor, Gene Phillips, and there was the most beautiful, fluffy, white, cumulus cloud in the sky. And Gene Phillips said, I think that's the kind of cloud that Jesus will come back in. For some reason, that so convicted me that I slipped away into some spot where nobody could see me, and I repented of every sin that I'd ever done and could think of because I was afraid he was going to come at any minute, and I wasn't ready. And I had a similar experience as we were coming out of church back in Ashland, Kentucky, when, for some reason, the moon, is a full moon, was just coming on the horizon, was red. And my dad said, look at the moon. It's a sign of the second coming. It's turned red. And that night, I gave my heart to the Lord all over again. <laughs> I repented of every sin I could think of. And I've often thought about that. I think, because it was a... Uh, industrial town, Ashland, in those days, there was a steel mill, and the smoke from building, making the iron into steel, uh, the smoke caused the moon to turn red. I think that's what it was. Whatever, it got my attention. But the second coming has been a very precious teaching over the years, and yet, I feel like a fraud when I say that. I asked myself today, when did I last preach on the second coming? And I'm not sure that I've done it in many, many years. Part of the reason for that is that I always follow Scripture. I go through a book in the Bible. Uh, at Westminster Chapel, we went through the uh, book of Acts, uh, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Galatians, James, 1 John, Jonah, Malachi, and so I'd go verse by verse, and if the second coming was there, I'd preach on it. Uh, and so I've no doubt touched on it because we went through the book of Acts. But to preach a sermon just on the second coming, it's been many years, and yet I felt 
that I was supposed to do it this evening. Now, what does it mean he comes with clouds? Are these literal clouds? Well, it may be that they will look like that. But I'm inclined to think that it's the cloud of glory, the smoke that filled the temple, the Shekinah. And I think it will be that phenomenon that will accompany Jesus the second time. He will come with the clouds, with clouds of glory, and I think it's probably referring not to a literal cloud or clouds in the sky, but to the Shekinah glory. One thing we know, that the second coming of Jesus will be literal and it will be visible. Now, this flies in the face of a very popular view of the second coming. And it might disappoint you if I gave you what I honestly believe Scripture teaches because some of the best Christians in the world hold to the idea of a secret rapture and that people will just be taken up, some will be taken, others left. My own father, he believed that so much so. He embarrassed me to high heaven. He put a bumper sticker on the back of his car, and we borrowed it for a summer, and I was embarrassed for people to see it. It says, this car will self-destruct in case of the rapture. I'm sure that made a lot of sense to people who saw that. And not sure how strong a witness it was. But many good Christians. Thing is, this theory is about 150 years old. No Christian in church history believed it till about 150 years ago when a group of Plymouth brethren here in England came up with that theory. And then, if you've ever heard of the Schofield Bible, uh, well, that became a very popular view uh, or version of Scripture. It was King James Version, authorized version. But Schofield wrote his notes in this Bible, and people who would read it wouldn't know the difference between what was Scripture and what was Schofield's comments. And he took the view of the secret rapture, and some of the finest people on earth have believed in it. And uh, I know churches in America more so than here where it is a point of doctrine. I mean, you, if you're going to be a member of that church, you have to believe in what they call the pre-tribulation, pre-millennial, if you have a second coming. If you don't, you're not a sound Christian. Reminds me of a story. Well, did you hear about this three weeks ago? A man was getting ready to jump off the bridge at the Golden Gate in San Francisco. And he was spotted, and a man ran up to him and said, Sir, please don't jump. Do you believe in God? Well, the man said, Well, as a matter of fact, I do believe in God. Oh, he said, I'm glad I caught you in time. I believe in God. Please don't jump. Tell me, are you a Jew or Gentile? He said, I'm, I'm Gentile. I'm a Gentile. Oh, please don't jump. Are you Muslim or Christian? He said, I'm a Christian. I'm a Christian. Oh, sir, don't jump. Are you Protestant or Catholic? He said, Protestant. Sir, I'm a Protestant. Please don't jump. 
tell me, are you Baptist or Presbyterian? <laughs> he said, I'm Baptist. I'm a Baptist. Oh, thank you, Lord. Don't, don't jump, sir. Are you Southern Baptist or Northern Baptist? He said, I'm a Southern Baptist. I'm a Southern Baptist. Sir, don't jump. Uh, are you a premillennialist or postmillennialist? He said, I'm a premillennialist. Oh, I'm a premillennialist. Please, don't jump. Are you pre-trib or post-trib? He said, I'm post-trib. Jump, you heretic. <laughs> there are those who take it that seriously. Now, the problem is, if you take the view that every eye shall see him, and the secret rapture would be that nobody sees him, supposedly, those saved go to heaven for seven years, some say three and a half, and they just miss, there'll be people missing, millions missing. Uh, I believe that for many years. I don't believe that's what Scripture teaches at all. He comes with clouds, every eye shall see him, and that's not all. According to 2 Thessalonians, he will come with fire. In fact, here's the way it is put in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. I never will forget reading the first part of this passage. Uh, it was when at Westminster Chapel, uh, I was going through a real struggle. We had some deacons that turned against my ministry, and they were being pretty horrible. And I was saying, Lord, what's going to happen would you please deal with these deacons? And uh, I opened my Bible one day, and my eyes fell on these words. God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to you who are troubled. I said, thank you, Lord, until an inner voice said, keep reading. <laughs> oh, dear. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. That's when it will happen. And, oh, no, Lord, you mean you're not going to deal with these horrible men until the second coming? But that's what Paul is saying, that when he comes, he's not only going to be visible, but will be revealed in blazing fire. And it goes on to say he will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. But the big thing is he will come with glory. And that's the point Peter makes on the day of Pentecost. He will come with glory. Now, as I said, Psalm 110 is the most quoted verse in the New Testament. Sit at my right hand... God says to Jesus, until I make your enemies my footstool. Now, this is something that I have preached here. And I don't know whether you were here when I preached it back in April. I think it was in the morning service. I might have preached in the evening. Honestly, I'm ashamed to say I can't remember. When I preached on the parable of the ten virgins. And five were wise, five were foolish. And uh, the parable of Jesus was uh, based upon an ancient 
Middle Eastern wedding, uh, where uh, in those days, weddings weren't held in a synagogue or a church or registry office, but in the bride's, uh, bridegroom's home. And so what they did in those days, the celebration could last for seven days. And uh, the groom would come at some time during the celebration to the bride's house and get her and take her back to his home. And that was the way it was done. But the bride would have uh, uh, young girls as her attendants, and uh, they would have lamps with oil, uh, and they needed the lamps for illumination because, strange as it may seem to us, sometimes the groom would come for her in the middle of the night. They did not know when he would come. She had to be ready. These attendants needed to be ready. So Jesus said the kingdom of heaven in the last generation of the church will be like that of ten virgins who went forth to meet the bridegroom. Five were wise, five were foolish. Now, when I was here before, I took more time than I have tonight to explain this. The wise virgins were those who were pursuing their inheritance. The foolish virgins were those who were not doing it. Every Christian is called to enter into their inheritance. Some do, some don't. Those who were not pursuing it were called foolish virgins. They didn't take oil with them, and so when their lamps went out, they didn't have oil to replenish them. And Jesus said that in the last generation of the church, the church would be asleep. One of the things about sleep is you don't know you were asleep until you wake up. And this can be very scary when you realize spiritually you might be asleep and honestly you believe you're awake. But it's like when you are sleeping, you dream and in your dream it seems like you're awake. And you do things in your dreams you would not do if you were awake. And Jesus said the state of the church in the last generation would be the church generally would be asleep. And the interesting thing is it was the wise as well as the foolish. Those who were pursuing their inheritance, they were asleep. Those who were not pursuing their inheritance, they were asleep. And then he said there would be a cry. And most translations put it the midnight cry. The Greek, in fact, it's two Greek words, literally read, in the middle of the night. So that what would happen is there would be an awakening. But another thing that needs to be clarified, because when we think of 12 o'clock midnight, uh, we think, well, that's when Jesus is coming. And I can remember as a boy, uh, they were saying, you know, it's 10 minutes to 12. And then a few years later, it's now seven minutes to 12, because when it gets 12 o'clock, that's the end, that's when Jesus comes. And I was 
brought up to believe at 12 o'clock midnight, end of history, so to speak, until I began to check it out more thoroughly. And what it says is that there would be an awakening of the ten virgins before the second coming. That being true, what will happen next on God's agenda is the cry in the middle of the night that will wake up everybody. And you wonder, well, how could this be? What kind of an awakening that will wake the church? And I've given a lot of thought to that in uh, recent times. And it hit me some time ago how easily this can happen. Because I predict that there is going to be a cry. I literally look for it every day that will awaken the church and it will be so potent, so definite, so real that the word of this wake-up call will go around the world in a very short period of time. Take what happened in America, we call it 9-11, September 11, 2001, when the two planes crashed into those buildings in New York City. That word went around the world. 95% of the world knew about it the same day. Some 12 months ago, I don't remember the exact date, but about a year ago, you may recall when there was an uprising in Egypt. They call it the Arab Spring. And how one million Muslims flooded the square in Cairo in an hour. Where did they get the message? How did they know to do that? Well, it wasn't on TV. Do you know how they did it? What just went off a while ago? Is that a smartphone you got? You know, smartphones. Did you know most young people under the age of 25 uh, don't have a computer, don't need it anymore? If you've got an iPhone, smartphone, we call it in America, you can get your weather report, the news, send a message, Facebook, Twitter. And the way it happened in Egypt is that one message went right all over Cairo and a million came to the square in one hour. That's how quickly things can go. I, I, when I go on Twitter or Facebook, uh, most of my blogs are written by, uh, read by less than a thousand, 800 maybe. Once, only once, I had one that went viral and 12,000 read it in 24 hours. The point is, the word that grips will go viral and around the world. That is just one way God can do it and how a wake-up call will take place. And here's the thing. No destinies are changed as a result of this wake-up call. The wise realize they were asleep, but at least they say, well, thank God we've got oil. 
The foolish were awakened, but it was too late for them. They couldn't say, oh, look, I want to be wise now, or I, I, I'm going to get some oil. It's too late. They couldn't even get it. It wasn't, there wasn't time. And so the reason that this is an important message is that when you know a wake-up call is coming, if this grips you, if this message grips you like it's gripped me, and I wait for this call, I want to be found ready with oil in my vessel, meaning that I'm pursuing the Spirit, I'm pursuing Scripture, I'm following God from the crown of my head to the toes of my feet. I don't want to miss anything that He has in mind for me. Those who take lightly Holy Scripture and God's call on your life, they're called foolish virgins, and they will be the ones that will be outside this amazing event. How would you like to be right in the middle of the greatest move of the Holy Spirit since Pentecost? How would you like to be involved in it when you're seeing the miraculous, when you lay hands on people and they are healed? It's no make-believe like you see with some uh, I don't want to be unfair, but I'm tempted to say fraudulent faith healers. And they claim all kinds of things, people being healed, and you follow them up, and, and many have, and interviewed the people that were supposedly healed, and find out six months later they weren't healed at all. And you wonder what's happening. But how would you like to be involved when people really were healed? And the gospel that you preach has such power that people are amazed by it. And you want to be right in the middle of it. I want to be in the middle of it. It would be the wise who get in on this. The foolish, they'll be going to the wise and say, pray for me. Please pray for me. And the wise will say, look, I've just got enough oil for myself. I don't know what I can say. I can't help you. And so would you welcome this cry at this moment or would you say, oh, no, I, I, I need a little time. Wait just a little longer. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us the day that this will happen. But it does tell us a few things that you can know that we're getting pretty close. For one thing, there would be an abundance of wickedness unlike the world has ever seen. Do you know, in the last 10 years, when I left Westminster Chapel 12 years ago, I thought the conditions were pretty horrible. And I look back, it wasn't so bad after all compared now to what's going on. The things that are approved and the things we all watch and we're all asleep and we say, well, no, these are horrible times we're living in. Really awful. Go back to sleep. Things don't bother us anymore. There's no outrage. We're so used to it. We do things we would not do if we are wide awake. But it's all the way we've become climatized as it was in the days of Noah, said Jesus as it was in the days of Sodom and Gomorrah. It comes down to one thing, the breakdown of the family. 
the old-fashioned view, husband, wife, one wife, one husband, parents bringing up children. This is now becoming rare. And the offspring growing up without any real sexual identity. And we're doing nothing to say, well, what we could do is emphasize sexual purity. Oh, no, we don't want to start doing things like that. You see, this is how far we've gone. An abundance of wickedness. A second sign of the time. Daniel chapter 12, verse 4, where there would be an increase of knowledge. If you stop to think how fast knowledge is increasing. Books today that are available were not available 50 years ago. They didn't even have the knowledge. I can remember a friend of mine showing me where he worked, and it was a building about the size of this church. He says, that's our computer. That's our computer. That big building, that's our computer. A few years later, he said, do you know there is more technology now in your watch than in that whole building? And that was 10 years ago. And every few months, something more comes out. Those who are in computer technology, if they don't keep up, they're behind the times in a very short while. Knowledge increasing. This is what Daniel said. And also, he said there would be travel, people traveling to and fro. When today, you don't think anything about going around the world in a very short period of time. I know what is go around the world in five days and preach four or five times, come back, sees normal. We travel around the world. All these things, the Bible says, would be indications of the end. There would be, says Paul, a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof. That is where people just go through the ritual, and they go to church, they get a, a religious feeling, and they feel better. But as for power, they don't even expect it anymore. They don't even know what it means. The church would be asleep. And so, said Jesus, just before the end, there would be this wake-up call. And he put it, and it's speaking figuratively, that in the middle of the night, when the church is in a deep sleep, those who are not pursuing their inheritance when this call comes, will resent it and they will hate it. But those who were pursuing their inheritance will welcome it and say, oh Lord, I've wandered so far from you. I can't believe I let myself get in that spiritual state, but th thank you. Thank you that you've wakened me up and, and I can repent and I've been granted the privilege of repentance. Because when this comes, it'll be too late. 
And so a message like this is kind of a, a mini wake-up call in anticipation of the wake-up call which Jesus is talking about. And so just before the end, that is what will take place. Now, how does it make you feel that this call could come at any moment? And here's what will happen. The first will be those nominal church members that all around the world, that they go to church maybe at Easter, maybe at Christmas, or at a funeral, or at a marriage, and they don't have time for God. We're talking about an incalculable number of people. It will be too late for them. But Romans 11 talks about the fullness of the Gentiles. And that means those who have not heard the gospel in its power and haven't, in fact, become really confronted with it. They will be given opportunity. And you're going to see as a spinoff of the midnight cry, an awakened church with thousands and thousands of people converted, and this will lead to the conversion of Islam. When Muslims, by the millions, virtually overnight, will recognize that Jesus died on the cross, did you know there are Muslims who have dreams of Jesus all the time, but they don't know what to do about them because they can't tell their leaders they're getting trouble. But this is happening. There are many Muslims who would just welcome an opportunity for the moment that they can acknowledge what they know is true because they've had dreams of Jesus so real that he actually died on the cross. And then when so many of those are converted. As Paul said in Romans 11:13, he wanted the conversion of the Gentiles to provoke Israel to jealousy. And what will happen then? The last to get in on it will be Israel coming to Christ in massive numbers, hundreds of thousands in Golders Green, in Brooklyn, New York, in Tel Aviv, in Jerusalem the blindness lifted from their eyes. And so all of this taking place while Jesus is at the right hand of the Father. He hasn't left his throne. You see, it's one thing if he left his throne and then did it with this fire and power with the angels. But no, at the right hand of God, he will orchestrate this awakening that will go right around the world. You say, R.T., do you really believe this? I'm going to tell you something. October the 31st, 1955, driving in my car. As I drove at my right hand, there's Jesus interceding for me. He was so real. I saw that he loved me more than I loved myself. I saw that my salvation was in his hands. I saw that I was saved. I can't be lost. I'm loved with an everlasting love. Before the day was over, it was clear the sovereignty of God. 
before the day was over, the resurrection of Jesus. So real. I, if I had been at the empty tomb on Easter morning, I wouldn't be more convinced. Then I saw this, that the second coming is so real. And I also saw that there would be revival that would go right around the world. And this would happen as virtually as, as though overnight. It could happen in a day. It'll happen in a very short period of time. It'll be more dramatic than those planes crashing into the buildings in New York City. This is going to get the attention of the whole world when Jesus will be seen as Lord and doing it all from the right hand because he's not going to leave the right hand of God until he makes all his enemies his footstool. I think I will see it while I'm alive. I will be 79 years old in July. I'm in good health. I've got a few years, my doctors tell me, and <laughs> I've got uh, two of my physicians here tonight checking me out. But if I were to die first, mark these words, it will happen. Be on the lookout, watch, because God's on the throne, and it'll be far greater for the glory of God, for his son to do it in the heavens without coming to the earth and using us, than if he came to the earth then and did it with his power. He's going to do it by the Spirit and the Word. Jesus is coming soon. This midnight cry is coming sooner. Heavenly Father, take this word. Apply it by your Holy Spirit. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.